Jay, thank you for coming this evening. It's always great to have the Gideons. My dad was a Gideon for many, many years, and so my love and appreciation for that ministry uh, is tremendous. And just hearing the sheer numbers of Bibles, that uh, is just incredible, isn't it? Uh, you know, and to me, that's one of those kind of things that until we get to heaven, we will not realize uh, the tremendous impact that even purchasing and giving one Bible can have uh, on other people for eternity. Several weeks ago, I was reading uh, in a Baptist, kind of a preacher periodical about a church, Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Let's be clear, not Calvary in Ruston or Alexandria, Calvary in Washington, D.C. And the church had made a decision to hire co-pastors. Now, what that basically normally would mean is you have two senior pastors, not a pastor and an assistant, but you would have two senior pastors. I have no problem with that. And some churches would, some wouldn't. It, it, that would kind of come down to maybe what you believe. Should you have just one pastor or should you have two sitting on the throne or whatever or sitting with bullseyes on them, however you view the senior pastor. Uh, as I continued reading, it said that one of those pastors was a lady. Now, that begins to change a little bit uh, about how people believe the Bible and believe on that subject, doesn't it? I mean, how you would view a a woman pastor versus a man senior pastor, it's going to come down to how you read and believe the Bible and interpret the Bible, correct? It's a belief thing at some point. As I read on, they were both husband and wife, which... Now, sometimes you will hear in some, in some more, more charismatic or Pentecostal churches, they might refer to Chris and Cindy as the pastors. Normally what that means is that I'm the first daddy and she's the first lady, right? And that she's more first lady where I, you know, I have to carry all the, the, the workload, but she's considered a pastor. Some churches, they might, might both be pastors of the church, but a lot of times it's more a symbolic role. As I read on in this article, I realized it was a husband and wife. It was a married couple, co-pastors, who were lesbians. Are you with me? Calvary Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. American Baptist, not Southern Baptist. For some of you, you can breathe a little deeper. Folks, uh, here's the bottom line. That has a lot to do with what you believe about things, doesn't it? We're beginning a series tonight uh, titled Beliefs Matter. And folks, I want to tell you, beliefs do matter. They absolutely do matter. Now, if I titled this series Doctrine, you, you wouldn't want to be here. If I had titled it Baptist Beliefs, you wouldn't want it to be here. Because like, we get bored. Oh, they're going to talk about doctrine. Uh, but we're going to talk about, so we're going to frame it like this. We're going to talk about what you believe. Because what you believe absolutely matters. We're going to be tonight in 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have a Bible, if not, it'll be on the screens. This is an eight-week series, and we're going to begin uh, the first four weeks are what I think are the most important parts of beliefs, where you just got to be right on this. And, And here's what these first four are, what you believe about the Bible, what you believe about God, what you believe about Jesus, and what you believe about salvation. I think those are the four most important, crucial things. And this evening, we're going to talk about the Bible. And I want to begin with this. What you believe about the Bible 
shapes all of your beliefs. You agree with that? How you pick up the Bible, how you understand the Bible, or what you understand it to be is going to impact how you translate that Bible, how you live that Bible out. What you do. See, beliefs matter because beliefs determine what you do ultimately, don't they? You've either got to be a hypocrite and, and live against your beliefs, which most of us can do comfortably, or <laughs> you have to do something even worse. When your beliefs go in contrary to God, you've got to change your beliefs, right, to justify your behavior. What you believe about the Bible shapes all your other beliefs. Either this belief or the belief about God. These are number one, probably tied. So we're going to start with this about what we believe about the Bible and how it affects everything else uh, that, that uh, we come to. Now, folks, really... Uh, the, the message, this is a message to Christians. I, I think a non-Christian it would be good for, for them to know what the Bible is and why it's important. But a person does not have to, to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe your Bible is the perfect word of God to be saved. They have to believe Jesus is the Son of God who died and arose and came back to life. And it's some, it, it, to some extent, they have to accept what the Bible says about Jesus, don't they, at that point. But this is about you and me as Christians and about how, what we believe about the Word of God is going to determine how we believe and see everything else. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, and we're going to kind of go back and forth with these tonight. It says, knowing this, first of all, you see that first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We're going to explain that more later. But here's what he's saying. First of all, he's saying in order and in rank of importance, you've got to be right on what you believe about the Bible. First of all, first in rank, first in order, first of importance, you've got to be right in what you believe about the Bible. America has been called the great Christian nation. We know that, that we're stumbling there uh, pretty radically, I would say. But, but listen to this. I thought this was, uh, this was really sad. This is a recent poll. 41% of Americans interviewed said they believe the Bible is a very helpful book, but not literally true. Now, how's a book helpful which swears that it's the Word of God, if it's lying to you, how's that helpful? It's helpful, it's just not literally true. I shared this story last year. Some of you who are awake during that sermon may remember it. But I had a friend in seminary one time, more of an acquaintance than a friend. We were talking about something in the book of First Peter, and we were kind of arguing and debating on it. And, and I, I'm not very smart, but I think I got the upper hand on him. And when I got the upper hand on him, here's what he said. I don't think Peter knew what he was talking about. Well, if it's just Peter who wrote that book, then maybe Peter didn't know what he was talking about, correct? Are you with me? This matters, doesn't it? It, it? it really, really does. Jessica Alba is an actress and her testimony is something like this. When she was 12 years old, she gave her life to Jesus Christ. It was radical. It was profound. She was committed to Christ. At 17, she began to kind of move away from that. She discovered that she was bisexual. And that as she began to think about all the people she knew in her life and her world, she couldn't imagine that a loving God would send anyone to hell. And she moved away from what the Bible said. She didn't like the boundaries that Scripture put on her life and others' lives. Hmm. Well, if the Bible's just a book, just Peter's ideas, Paul's ideas, Matthew's, Mark's, 
then I guess you can move away from it, can you? The thing for you and I this evening is this. What you believe about the Bible is huge. Because what you believe about the Bible is going to determine what you believe about everything else. So let's look at this. First of all, let's look at this, or I guess second of all. The Bible says it's the perfect Word of God. Isn't that neat? The Bible says... It's the perfect word of God. It's a pretty good place to start. In 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all means exactly what you learned in grammar school. It means everything. Scripture there is neat. It can mean a single text or it can mean the whole book. All scripture is breathed out by God. I love that phrase. It's inspired by God. Listen, it's what he's saying here is all scripture from Genesis 1.1 through Revelation 22 has been has come from the mouth of God. Folks, that matters, doesn't it? That's what the Bible says about itself. Now listen, logical deduction here, but I think a right deduction. If God breathed it out, it doesn't have errors in it, does it? If God's God. Let's go over to 2 Peter again. Knowing, first of all, first of all, no prophecy. And the word prophecy, don't get thrown off by there. It can mean predicting the future, but a lot of times it means a proclamation of the Word of God. No prophecy of Scripture, single text or the whole thing, comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not just what Peter thought or Paul thought. Verse 21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, what he's saying here is not that God didn't use men when he gave us the Bible, because he absolutely did. But he's saying that God used men as he directed them. He gave them the words to speak. You, you don't need to look at Romans or Corinthians and say, well, that's just what Paul thought. That's what a lot of people do. What the Bible is arguing from itself is that God gave those men what to say. He didn't uh, superimpose over their personalities or, or their culture or where they came from. I can't, you know, the New Testament is written in Greek, and I'm not a good enough Greek scholar to be able to see this, but some of my professors in graduate school were, and they said you can tell a distinction from when Peter is writing, God's writing through Peter, or when Paul's writing, because Peter was a common man. Paul was a top intellectual. You can tell a difference. You can tell a difference when someone, when a third grader writes you a letter and when a Ph.D. can, correct? God didn't, God didn't do away with their personalities. God just made sure the message was on target. Paul was a prolific writer. He may have written a thousand letters in his lifetime. They didn't have email or tweets or text. He couldn't Snapchat the people in Corinth, you know, uh, in the, in the, you know, I'm at the prison, you know, he's chained up. And he a, no, he couldn't do that. He, they wrote. Thirteen of his letters were, were given to us from God through him. It's neat when it says in this passage that he, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It means they were moved by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, guided by the Spirit. It means to take someone from one point to another point. In other words, when, when God got ready to use a human author to give us the Bible, he didn't do away with that author's personality or, or their understanding. They didn't go into some kind of trance and just start writing like this. But God superintended the whole process. God took them from point A to point B. How many of you have ever ridden on a ferry? 
they don't, there's not a lot of ferries anymore, is there? I, I don't see them. But I mean, when I was a kid, there was some place we'd cross the Mississippi River and we'd have to get on a ferry. And you always loved that as a kid because your parents were uptight. They were afraid you're going to fall in the river. And your dad knew he was going to have to dive in there after you. And you both are going to be catfish food probably. But you'd get on that ferry and there might be 50 cars on there, all different colors, all different shapes. But when you got on that ferry, you know what? It didn't matter about what your car looked like. You were going to a destination that that ferry was going to carry you to, correct? And, and, and what he's saying here, God used all different shapes and kinds of people, but God ferried the process. God directed the process. The Bible says that, that God is the one that gave us the Scriptures. 56% of Americans say that they believe the Bible has no errors. That's semi-encouraging until you do the math the other way. 44% of Americans say the Bible has errors in it. You know who Larry King is? Larry King Live? Larry King, this is about three years ago, he had some guests on there. and It was a, a Future of Faith in America panel. Two of the, it's funny how when they want to talk about faith, they get atheists. Isn't that weird? Or they get some Bible scholar from Yale who doesn't believe the Bible. Is that not the craziest thing? I'd like to hire an, an electrician who didn't believe in electricity. Isn't that just dumb? Well, I'm a New Testament scholar. I just don't believe it. No, you're an idiot. I'm sorry. That was... There's some, you're not, your behavior is idiotic. Would you agree with me on that? Listen to this. Larry asked them, the two voiced their views on the Bible. When asked if the Bible is reputable, the atheist scientist... Lawrence Krauss quipped, the Bible was written basically before people knew anything. Oh, shucks. Michael Beckwith, a self-proclaimed new thought minister. I'm a no thought minister. The Bible, to me, is an evolution of human consciousness. We don't call it the Word of God. We call it people who were inspired by the presence of God. What in the world was he saying? Folks, I I don't care what... an atheist or some minister of thought says about the Bible, I am interested in what the Bible says about itself. You should be too. What you believe about the Bible is going to determine what this church does, how we behave. The Bible says it is the perfect Word of God. Now, I want to tell you something this evening that I think is really neat. The Bible is an extremely sound ancient document. It's an extremely sound ancient document. I'm going to explain that to you. For me tonight to know what the Bible says about the Bible is good enough. I accept it. I'm cool with it. I'm for it 100%. You may not be. You certainly know people who don't just take it for face value that the Bible is the perfect word of God. Let me, I want to share with you uh, part of an article. This was written by a guy named Phil Fernandez. And Phil talks about the New Testament, and and, uh, it's a biblical defense of the New Testament. He says, the New Testament is by far the most reliable ancient writing in existence today. There exist today over 24,000 copies, 5,000 of them in the original Greek of the New Testament, either in whole or in part. And then he goes and he, he does a comparison between Homer's Iliad... And Plato's four dramas. Homer's Iliad, there is 643, now stay with me, 643 existing copies of Homer's Iliad. The closest one to Homer is 500 years after him, okay? 
But this is interesting. Of those 643, historians and, 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 and people, literature experts, say that they are in 95% agreement, That which means they've got pretty good copies of Homer's Iliad. Plato's four dramas, there is seven existing copies. The closest one is 1,200 years from Plato. Now, you never heard anyone say, well, Homer's Iliad or Plato's works are, are felonious and they're, they're false, you know, nothing like that. But listen to the New Testament. New Testament, over 24,000 existing copies of the New Testament, ancient documents. 5,600, as I said, full manuscripts. Now, listen, we've got parts of copies of the New Testament that go back to 25 years from the original New Testament. Is that not awesome? The agreement of the 24,000 that we have, the ancient copies, are 99.5% in agreement. Is that not wonderful? Listen, you could be an atheist, but you'd have to be astounded at that. That's supernatural. Let me tell you how we got our Bible that you have in your hands tonight, or you have on your phone tonight, or your computer tonight. I believe, one, God gave it to us, obviously. How did the people who ultimately said, and we'll talk primarily about the New Testament tonight, how did we get that? Well, they used two major criteria after the Holy Spirit, which was the, the number one. The, the other two criteria, first was the, the author of the book. There are lots of books out there that, that claim, you know, the gospel of Judas, the, God, the Gnostic gospels, all those kind of silly things. But for a Bible to have made it in what we call the canon, the 27 books of the New Testament, it had to be written by someone who was an eyewitness to Jesus Christ or who was connected to an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. You hear me? It had to be somebody that was there or someone who was the next in line to someone who is there. That's pretty important. The second thing was the date. The book had to be written within a time frame that people could stood up and said, no, that's not true. Folks, every book in the New Testament, some scholars say that the full New Testament was written within 35 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. A.D. 33, so you're about A.D. 68. Now, some others believe, and I kind of lean this way, that it may have been a little bit later, maybe 60 years after the death and resurrection. But, but the, the whole premise of us is that the author had to be someone who knew Jesus or someone who knew Jesus uh, personally, was acquainted, best friends, close to that, getting their information from that. And the book had to be written in a time frame when people could say whether it was true or false. Listen, if there started being all kinds of false stuff put out about the Gulf War in 1990, there's a the whole room full of people here that know the truth on that. that listen, that World War II ended 72 years ago, but there are people in this room tonight that, that were alive during World War II. Even if you were a small child, you could stand up and say, no, Antarctica did not win the war for us, correct? If you heard silliness, that, that was the premise of the, the, the New Testament, that it had to be by people who were valid. Have you ever heard of the Gospel of Judas? First of all, why in the world would you want the gospel of Judas? I mean, I mean, change the name to the gospel of Fred or something, not the gospel of Judas. What a horrible name. And, and people say, well, we ought to pay attention to the gospel of Judas. No, we shouldn't. We, we don't know who wrote it. And it was written 150 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That would be literally like me trying to write an eyewitness account to the Civil War today. Only Dorman's old enough to do that. 
So what I'm trying to sell you on is, listen, you've got a Bible that stands historical test. Isn't that great? What you believe about this thing matters. Because what you, are you going to believe what's in it? What you believe about it matters. So here's my last thought to you this evening. We need to embrace the Bible as God's perfect and relevant word. We need to embrace it as God's perfect and relevant word. Vance Havner was an old preacher in another generation. Havner said, and I think this is good, the Bible has no middle ground. It's either absolute or it's obsolete. (laughs) It's either real or it's not real. Amen. I want to tell you where I stand. I stand with it being absolute. That it's the absolute Word of God. You know, here's the problem with a lot of churches today, a lot of preachers today, a lot of teaching today. We are ambiguous about the Word of God. We don't know what we believe. Thus saith the preacher. You don't need to listen to what I say. You need to listen to what I say when I'm saying, thus saith the Lord. When it's coming from the Word of God. We we can be clear because we know where this book came from. Let's go back to chapter 3. Of verse 16 of 2 Timothy, all scripture, every bit of it is breathed, comes out of the mouth of God. It's profitable, it means it's helpful, it's advantageous to teach us. That's the word doctrine. It tells us what to believe. It uses the word reproof next. That's conviction. The Bible, the Bible convicts us. How many of you have ever read the Bible or heard it preached and walked away and go, whoa. Amen. It convicts us. It corrects us. That's, that's the goal of conviction is correction, it says next. That's to set us right. And then the last, it says training or instructs, instructs us in the ways of righteousness. Folks, here's what I want to say you all. The Bible is God's word and it is relevant today. It is our rule book for this church. It's the rule book for this life. I, I don't, I'm not interested in other creeds or documents primarily. I am interested in what the word of God says. And that's, by the way, been the strength of what Baptists have been about. As we've said, we stand on one thing. We stand on the Bible. We stand on the Word of God. We hadn't always stood very clear on it, but we need to. The old Baptist faith and message, they updated one in 2000, but one I grew up on, one of the great statements in there, it says about the Bible, it says the Bible is is truth with no mixture of error. Now listen to this. The Bible doesn't contain truth. The Bible is truth. There is a huge difference there. And it's truth without any mixture of error. I want to share with you one last thing. Pretty neat stuff, I think. 66 books make up our Bible. Do you know that? 66 books. Written by 40 different authors. They came from a variety of backgrounds. You've got shepherds, fishermen, doctors, kings, prophets, and others. Most of the authors never knew one another personally. 66 books written over 1,500 years. Yet again, this is another reminder, most of them never knew each other, and they, they didn't get together and collaborate. 66 books written in three different languages. In the Bible, we have books that were written in the ancient languages of Hebrew, Greek, and a little bit of Aramaic, a reflection of the historical and cultural circumstances in which each of these books were written. 66 books written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. Once again, this is a testament to the varied historical and cultural circumstances of the book. 66 books written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, three different languages on three different continents. What's more, this collection of books shares a common 
storyline. The creation, the fall, the redemption of God's people, a common theme. God's universal love for all of humanity and a common message. Salvation is for everyone who will repent of their sins and turn to Jesus Christ. In all these differences, these 66 books, their commonalities, there's no historical eras or contradictions. It is a supernatural book. It's the Word of God. This evening, if you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you to come and give your life to Christ tonight. Here's what the Bible says. Without Jesus, you're lost. But it also says you can give your life to Jesus Christ tonight and leave here saved. You can catch me or one of the ministers after church or when we stand in a moment, you can come. We want to challenge you to do that. Maybe you're here tonight and you're looking for a church home. We would love for you to join our church if God's leading you to. One thing I can promise is we're imperfect, but we do believe the Bible is the Word of God. That's our fundamental starting point belief. That's what you're looking for, and I'm telling you that's what you need. Come and join us tonight or join us after church. We'll help you. Christian, maybe where you're standing or at the altar, listen, maybe you need a little jolt tonight. You need to make a, an adjustment in your life to come back, and when you pick up that Bible, when you hear it preached and taught, you are reminded afresh tonight that it is the living Word of God, God's Word for you. Embrace it and live it out. Let's stand as God leads you. you come.